You're listening to The RN Mentor, a podcast designed to document and bring you the work and experience of some of the most influential nurses in our profession. We will be sitting down and having a discussion with the leaders of today's nursing world as they share their work, how they navigate their nursing path, and their views on the future of the profession. My name is Ali Tayeb. I am a registered nurse, United States Navy veteran, a Jonas Veterans Healthcare Scholar, and your host for The RN Mentor. And welcome to another episode of the RN Mentor Podcast. I am uh, ecstatic to be joined today uh, by Dr. Margaret Moss. Dr. Moss is a University of Minnesota School of Nursing professor and Associate Dean for Nursing and Health Policy. Dr. Moss is an enrolled member of the Mandan, Hidatsa, and Arikara Nation with equal lineage in Dakota First Nation. She is the first and only American Indian to hold both nursing and Juris doctorates. She has been a nurse for 34 years and an academic for 23 years across four universities, including the University of Minnesota, Yale University, Sunny Buffalo, and recently the University of British Columbia. Dr. Moss was a Robert Wood Johnson Foundation Health Policy Fellow, staffing the U.S. Senate Special Committee on Aging, a Fulbright Research Chair at McGill University, Montreal, and on a Minister of Health for British Columbia Team on Anti-Indigenous Racism, resulting in the report titled In Plain Sight. Dr. Moss published an award-winning text, American Indian Health and Nursing, in 2015, co-led the development of the UBC Indigenous Strategic Plan in 2020, was named to the inaugural Forbes 50 over 50 impact list in 2021, is a fellow of the American Academy of Nursing and a member of the American Academy of Nursing's Board of Directors, and is a new member of the National Academy of Medicine. Her areas of interest are aging, policy, and law with a focus on American Indian and other indigenous and diverse populations. Welcome to the show, Dr. Moss. Thank you so much, I'm glad to be here. Um, So I wanna start, first of all, first of all, congratulations on your becoming a new member of the National Academy of Medicine. And is it true you were the only nurse uh, that was a new member? No, I think there was at at least one other. Okay, yeah, still very underrepresented, I think. Right. But but thank you, thank you, congratulations though on that. We'll get started with my normal, uh, my with my regular questions. Is how did you decide you're going to have a career in the world of nursing? Sure. Well, uh, I grew up with a, a an adopted family. I I spoke about this some in um, a, a talk I did for um, AAN a couple of years ago. That is the product of actually assimilation policies in the U.S., which is adoption of American Indians into non-Indian families that le- that lasted over decades. It is currently against 
federal law. So the way I grew up is against federal law today, um, which is so I was adopted by uh, a couple who were um, of German and English descent. My father, the adoptive father, was a neurosurgeon and my mother was a nurse. So what are you going to do? <laughs> so that's that's the uh, context I grew up in. And um, I always loved science, math, all that sort of stuff. And um, when I was growing up, of course, the house was filled with medical journals, anatomy books, and those fun old timey ones where there was like transparencies in the middle of the books. I don't know if you know what I'm talking about. And you, you could overlay I, the digestive system and all that. Anyway, yes, yes. I just thought it was very fun. So I, I remember like memorizing all the bones of the body in fifth or sixth grade, things like this. So I just <laughs> knew that I was, that's what I did for fun. <laughs> so I knew I was going to go down that path somewhere. So I did get my first degree in biology while I was sorting all of this out. And um, during college, I would, however, work as a CNA. Back then, I go so far back, they were just NAs. There was no C back then. And and I really enjoyed it. I worked, I loved working with the older people. I loved doing it. And um, it was just sort of filed in my background. And so then I went to a program that uh, served... American Indians wanting to go into medicine. Hmm. And so I started, and I'm not naming it for a reason, although one could probably figure it out anyway. And so I went there for pre-professional, like you want to go into medical school, because although I had a biology degree, it didn't hit all the prerequisites one would need. And, you know, during this time I beefed up and did the MCATs and all that did well um, I had several interviews at Michigan, Brown, and this place. <laughs> anyway, but when I was interviewing at this place, and, I, and I'm saying this to give you hints as to why I didn't go this direction, um, the, the people interviewing me um, were saying, well, why should you be in this program sort of thing? Like, you were adopted, so you're not really Indian as the implementation implication right like oh, wow. like like the minute i went out onto the street the general public would say oh you were adopted by white people you're fine no 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 <laughs> so anyway i thought hmm, i'm wow. not sure this is quite the place for me so i instead um although i did interview at some of those places all of those places i took a position it was another program it at uh also i don't I won't name this, but I'm sure you could also figure that because all these things, I had all these things happen to me along the way. So I went to do some, to do research in the East, famous place. And um, so I was like um, helping the scientists because I just had my biology degree at this point with their protocols. I was ripping DNA out of lung cells and then putting, you know, carcinogens on them and, you know, getting DNA out and so forth, this kind of stuff. And um, one of the scientists there didn't like something that happened, although it wasn't me. They blame me. <laughs> this sounds terrible. But anyway, it all got cleared up and it wasn't me, whatever this thing was. And, um, but then the person, this is a scientist, 
<laughs> this is a, you know, august scientist who told me, oh, you should just go. Well, he said it to someone else as I walked in the room. Why don't you go back to the reservation and chew leather? Wow. This is this is a famous place scientist. Right. So I thought, hmm. Maybe medicine isn't the area for me, you know, because I just keep getting all these. So in the the school place, I wasn't Indian enough. And in this place, I was too. And, you know, I'm like, what the hell? Wow. So anyway, I mean, what the heck? So I started to remember, you know what? I really liked nursing at the level that I had been doing it. And I really admired my mother um who was always like the neighborhood nurse the school nurse all that because there were five kids in my fam my family growing up and you know so she wasn't and it was a different time she wasn't outside working but she always did the nurse thing so i said you know what i think i'm going to try nursing the school <laughs> so i went back west where i had been living and um decided let's do it and so that's how i that's how i started wow crazy um it's it's you know it's it's a very it's it's ironic that now you're now you're a member of the National Academy of Medicine. Right. When, <laughs> when... Don't think I didn't think of that. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. I wonder what those guys are doing now. But anyway. Yeah, yeah. Um, hopefully they're not they're, they're no longer doing anything. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a, it's amazing how um, exclusive. Uh, uh, we tend to be in in the healthcare field, and even in nursing, uh, there's areas that are still exclusive. I, I it just reminds me, you know, being being male in the in the in a primarily female profession, uh, I've had I've had nurses uh, in in leadership roles that have specifically said men. I don't think men belong in nursing. Um, wow. So um so so. Not to the same level, obviously. I'm, you know, uh, but but again, uh, I I can the exclusions that we create within within healthcare, it just seems uh, counterproductive to our own profession. So um, it's interesting things like this happen. Uh, how was your experience uh, as 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 somebody who had that uh, Native American lineage uh, or Native uh, lineage? Uh, how did that translate into while you were in the nursing program? Did that impact it at all? Because I know professors and, and academia tends to be very on the white. Right. White and female. Yes. White and right. female. So, um, yeah, just as a little context. So, again, I was born in North Dakota and um but adopted then my father was with the va actually i'm a va brat i notice you have a wow. you have a veteran i do, I do. Bent. <laughs> um so i grew up on vas and va properties and um anyway but so lots of moving so um in my first three years from birth till three uh, fargo va milwaukee va several pittsburgh vas and then to DC. So um, we moved to DC and when I was three and my, cause my father was at the central office, he was pretty high up. And then, um, and I say that to say there weren't many natives in Washington DC in the sixties, which is when I was uh, three. And um, 
so therefore there weren't any there was no other uh and sometimes i'll flip back and forth with the vernacular to indian um but anyway there weren't any other indian students there weren't any indian teachers there weren't any indian and and we went to a catholic school and a congregation and practically the whole neighborhood was the congregation no other persons no community members no priests no sisters nothing Wow. So um, there were two other kids adopted with me. They were actual brother and sister, and they're from uh, the the same reservation. Anyway, so we were it. I mean, we were the only other Indians I saw were there. <laughs> so, you know, we were like our own little urban reservation, I guess. So this carried on. Uh, then he was transferred to Portland, the Portland VA. That's where exactly my high school years again I think there was actually one brother and sister in the high school that I went to but wow. who are native and that was it. But again, I've never had a native teacher, uh, hospital situation, just nothing. So by the time I got to nursing school and I went to, I went to a two year to start out because back in my day, there were none of these accelerate from this and accelerate from that, you know, and if you already have a degree, so forth. No, you had to start over. And so it would have probably taken three years again after my first four-year degree because everything's in order and there weren't any of these accelerate. So I took, so I did the two-year ADN because I said, I just want to get in and get out. So um, anyway, I did that. And of course there was nobody, nothing. I, and all that time through my biology degree, of course, and through the, um, the nursing program, never heard anything about uh, natives as far as healthcare or issues or biology nothing and so um that kind of stuck in my head so anyway when i came out uh obviously well not obviously oddly maybe my first nursing position was at the portland va where i had grown up years before during my high school years so that was kind of fun and but i soon said to myself you know what i think i want to work with natives. And since I was already a federal employee, I could do a federal transfer into Indian Health Service. So, yes. um, so, and my husband was also getting a bit of the, what do you call it? The sad, because it rains in Portland all the time, or it's oh. just dri drizzly and all that. And he's not into it. So we went, where it doesn't rain, I could be federal chance. So we moved to Albuquerque <laughs> and I worked <laughs> at the Santa Fe Indian Hospital for um, several years, five to six and then I transferred back to the Albuquerque VA. I just couldn't get out of those systems, I guess. Anyway, um, and I heard one of your other speakers saying that 60%, um, and maybe this is now, 60% of the nurses in Indian Health Service were Native. Huh. Well, when I went to the Santa Fe Indian Hospital, I was the second Indian RN. There was only... The two wow. of us, one that was there and not from the community. She was Navajo and then me. And I was from the Plains since this is a New Mexican. You right. Know. Anyway, so that was interesting because it was just there weren't any. <laughs> there was me and one other person. 
So anyway, I worked there for several years, and now that I've talked so much, I forgot what the question was. Was that? <laughs> I, don't know. I was actually asking about your experience uh, as a, as a as a native oh, yeah. individual yeah. Um, of how school was. So no, no, you answered it perfectly. Okay. Um, so I mean, that brings me to my, and I asked this, I've asked this of several of my guests who've been on the show. Uh, uh, how important do you think um, having representation? Uh, within the schools of nursing, within academia, is to the students uh, that are, for example, Native or Black or Filipino or any other uh, race and ethnicity, how important is having that diversity within academia to the learner, in your opinion and experience? Oh, it's extremely important. I mean, I just sort of white knuckled my way through all of my, <laughs> through all my experiences. I mean, I was, I was it, you know, and then if the topic of your population comes up, if it comes up and it mostly mm. didn't, then all heads turn to you. And I mean, from third grade on, you know, every, every fall, there's the, you know, Indian chapter or Columbus and Thanksgiving and all that. And everybody turns to look at you You're like I'm just, I'm just in the class like everybody else anyway I mean that went on forever so if it came up everybody looks at you or asks you or whatever you're like I am just a student in this class and then um but if there are others then you don't have to represent your race yeah. I mean most um dominant culture people don't have to represent their race or if they do something they just did something, not the entire race. Right. Versus if you are it and you do something, then, oh, Indians do this or that or mm. whatever. So, um, so yeah, it, it's a lot. It's And people do talk about that now, about the burden of always having to explain or teach or whatever from wherever you are. If you're a nurse, a student, whatever, you have to teach whatever it is because the faculty don't know. Yeah. You know, what are they going to do? So anyway, it's extremely important. And also just to have people to bounce things off of who get it immediately, you only say three words and they nod at you and you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. whereas it would take a, five paragraphs to explain to somebody else. Right. You know, so it's it's the shortcuts in living that people don't realize that they have and um, just the comfort level um, spreading around that who's going to answer something because you know they're going to ask and that's well actually I shouldn't say no they're going to often they don't ask so you know this is rudimentarily at least when I was going I, I'm pretty sure it's a little better now but if I learned anything in any of my nursing programs and I you know three of them the pre-licensure master's and PhD um, it's oh they don't look you in the eye which is so <laughs> surface and vague it's it's very much more complicated than that it is you know tribe by tribe some the young don't look the elder some an unmarried man can't look at you know this older woman or you know there's there's rules to it and right. some don't follow that at all but that's might be what you learn or they want their hair back if you brush their hair you know there's no context it's just picked out a couple of weird things and uh, so this is what um, prompted me to uh, write the text and, yeah. or the published text, because 
no one ever learns anything, <laughs> at least in any depth, on the indigenous populations. So, right, and, and that's problematic. And I'm trying to uh, relate to what you're sharing here. And I'm I'm actually right now in the process of writing a a veterans uh, health chapter for a public health nursing book because they didn't have it. It's a chapter that didn't exist before. And I'm trying to figure out exactly sort of what you mentioned is all the nuances between the different branches and the subcultures within those branches. Absolutely. And it's almost, you know, and it does need its own book. And there is a book out there for, uh, for veterans health stuff, but still, it's still just without the actual experience of being in the military, it's very difficult to translate that for the general mm -hmm. public. Uh, so I'm sure it's very much the same thing with you. And, you know, I'm I'm from, from the Middle East. I'm from Iran and trying to explain that the entire Middle East is not one culture. It's all different <laughs> cultures right. and traditions and history. And, and so, um, so, um, and so I can, I can relate to some of the things that you're, that you're mentioning. And I could tell you a little story about the two, because I worked a lot in Indian health and in various VAs, uh, right. Portland, Albuquerque, and did some research at Houston during my doctorate in uh, Santa Fe Indian Hospital and so forth. So I, I became a, eventually a nursing supervisor at the Indian Health Service Hospital. And boy, does that open your eyes. That, that was probably the basis of my book was what I, what I learned being there because I only learned what anybody else learned. I learned just like anybody else. So that's where I got my first real Understand. So as a nursing supervisor, let's say um, somebody passes away. And so as a supervisor, you take them to the morgue and so forth. Now, if you're in a regular hospital, <laughs> you know, you would, there's probably something in there about um, funeral direction, you know, where, where are they going to go and so forth and so on. Not there. And um, you wait for people from the child. Sometimes they're five hours away. Right. to come batting across the mesa <laughs> in their pickup. And then as the administrator, I would open up the morgue, but I really am not allowed to be in there mm. because I'm the wrong gender, the wrong tribe, et cetera, et cetera. So they're doing what they do with blankets and ash and so forth, uh, prayers, ceremony. And then they bring the person out, put it in the back of the pickup truck. One of my major duties is to make sure the doctor signs the, death certificate and get it into that truck or else they're just batting across the base with a, a body, you know? So I'm right. like, where did they teach me this in <laughs> nursing school? They, <laughs> you don't. Know? they, they don't. don't, they don't. And, wow. um, and then of course there's a lot of Indian religious acts and so forth. And so something happens on one of the Pueblos and this served like 11 Pueblos, a little bit of Apache and Navajo. And there goes your entire food service staff, you know, because even, even though in the U.S. they might be deemed as having lower level jobs, but in their tribes, they could be high pre, you know, they could be, so off they go and there you are, there you are. You're just yeah. sort of, you're just sort of there and you're like, okay, well, we'll take care of it, you know? Yeah. Uh, and then the last one is like, um, when you have somebody transferred in, whether it's from Albuquerque VA or something else, here comes the helicopter. And I'd worked in several hospitals. You know, I'm like, okay, the helicopter's coming. But I didn't occur to me where's it going to go because this is like a single story hospital. <laughs> <laughs> and so again, the the 
the staffs, uh, the um, you know support staff. There was a school, an Indian school next to us. They went out to the field, parked their trucks, turned on the headlights, and that's how the the oh, helicopter. Wow. So compare that to then I became a supervisor at the Albuquerque VA. There's no way you would let someone else into that more, you know, only, only yeah. the administrative, you know, person such as myself or whatever. And, or you have to accompany them if they want to see something, you know, you couldn't, it was completely different rules, just wow. completely different rules. And, and then we kind of got caught every once in a while, if there was a, a, a native veteran, you know, are they going to go to Albuquerque VA? Are they going to go to the Santa Fe Indian Hospital? And there was all this back and forth. I don't even think anybody really asked the patient. These ones want to go here. These ones want to go there, you know, so there, it's a whole yeah. thing with these federal systems. Yeah, and and I think I briefly, uh, when when you and I first met, like earlier in the year, I've actually heard you speak several times. So, uh, thank you, and that's one of you. You've been on my bucket list to put on, bring on the show for a while now. <laughs> but I think the last time we connected when you were in LA, uh, we we mentioned like like where the the native uh, population who also who is also who are also veterans. Um, are, are really not in the best place because there's so the federal regulations on who does what and who cares mm -hmm. for this population is a little bit ambiguous. And yeah. a lot of times these veterans fall through the, through the gaps of service because mm -hmm. the VA says you should be getting care at your tribal lands. And then the tribe saying, no, you're a veteran, you should be getting care at the VA. And these veterans actually don't end up like getting their care. It's significantly delayed, which is a, which is an issue. Yeah, and I, I think I talked to some, the first stint when I was in Minneapolis, and uh, I talked to some Native veterans, and they didn't necessarily want to go to the Minneapolis VA, but close by, according to my recollection, it's been a while, there's like a, a vet center or something, and right. they would go there, but they didn't necessarily want to go into the VA itself. And so there's some levels of acceptability, you know. Yeah. So it, it is complicated. I don't think people have looked at it all that much. Uh, there is some movement in that in the VA space where, uh, especially with psych mental health services, there's a new uh, um, policy that just got passed where the VA has representation within their VA facilities for native populations to address some of those very like nuances that you, as mm. you mentioned, um, but we're still, we're still not where we need to be. Like, not even close. Um, but yeah, well, thank you for that. Um, I want to talk about uh, your decision to go for, uh, like, for example, your master's or your PhD and actually get into research. What prompted you to move uh, that direction? Mm -hmm. So again, when I went to the uh, Indian hospital, I was most interested in the elders. I guess a holdover from my CNA days, even though I didn't have any Indian elders there, but um, I was very interested in why they would literally, so we try to discharge them in, into some sort of care and they didn't want to go. They would only want to go home. And most of the care, if not all at that time, this was the nineties, um, was, as they say back there, Anglo or Hispanic. Those were their choices. And they're like, no, because there wasn't really any uh, native home health per se. You know, there's still the public health nurses that go out after a, a, um, 
discharge or something, but there wasn't anything solid back then. And they didn't want to go into Albuquerque or somewhere in Santa Fe. They just wanted to go home. And so um, I started looking at how could we do adult daycare with this population. So I, I decided to get my master's and that was my capstone as uh, like a business plan for Indian adult daycare that could be culturally and age relevant and so forth. Wow. And so therefore they're only gone for the day or parts of the day, like their, their family member could drop them off and then pick them up later. They're still at home or whatever. And while I was doing research on that, um, shout out to University of Texas Houston, I kept their gerontology program kept popping up in my searches and whatnot. And I said, well, let me give it a whirl. I mean, I had never, like some of your um, guests say, you just sort of fell from one thing to the next. I had never thought I was going to get a PhD. And so I thought, well, they have a specific gerontology. Let me give it a whirl. It's right next door. I thought this is how dumb I was. <laughs> um, so, you know, 1200 miles later, Texas is huge. It is. Um, um, <laughs> uh, anyway, I got accepted. So I went to, um, um, to study this. My research questions were around why, why won't American Indian elders accept outsider out of culture care? And do research, do uh, gerontological theories fit with mm. this population? And so I ended up doing a ethnography on uh, the Zuni Pueblo, uh, which is in a southern Pueblo. When I was at Santa Fe, there were like 11 northern Pueblos. So I didn't really, I didn't know much about Zuni, but it's a very, very traditional tribe. And so I thought, well, if I know there what's going on there... <laughs> Um, and I was trained pretty much Western, you know, people will follow along the continuum. So, I mean, they, the elders often or mostly speak their own language as well as um, uh, English, sometimes Spanish, sometimes the other Pueblo languages, their language is the, they are the only ones that speak it. It's called an isolate. They're the only ones in the world that speak it. The wow. other Pueblos have some shared languages and Spanish. So anyway, um, so I went there to understand that. Oh, amazing, amazing! Um, I know I had I had uh, um, I did a podcast uh, a, a couple of years ago with uh, with uh, the public health uh, nurses in Alaska, uh, and they shared some of the same uh, same same uh, sentiments about. Uh, specific individual or specific tribe speaking being the only one speaking a language and actually that's how they disseminated some of their covid vaccinations to preserve the languages yeah. of certain tribes is just making sure that those tribes were not impacted because being so few that speak like specific languages or cultures if they had caught covid and had died from it that that whole they would have been gone, right? Uh, right. So uh, they had spoken about that. So very interesting. Um, my my wife and my kids and I we, we do we do these little road trips and we always make it a point to hit some of the uh, national parks that have reserved that have preserved uh, some of the native, uh, um, for example, buildings and structures. And I'm always um, very much impressed with uh, with with how far. 
uh, they were how much they could do with just off the land. I'm like, I think about that now, and I'm like, I probably would have a hard time building a fire in my backyard with right. a match. Right. Uh, yeah. So let yeah. alone like building these incredible structures and and the culture is always blows my mind. So um, so thank you for sharing that. Um, uh, how about your your work now? Uh, you you're you're doing work uh, with the indigenous populations and you're doing work with uh, uh, with the uh, with around aging. Uh, can you share with with the audience a little bit about the work that you're doing now and sure. uh, its impact on nursing and healthcare? Well, actually, I'm coming back to it now. The last five years, I have been at University of British Columbia, and 80% of my job there was uh, as director of the First Nations House of Learning, and 20% was in uh, nursing uh, as a professor at the School of Nursing. But most of my job had been uh, Indigenous, the largest Indigenous unit under the provost. Up there, they have way more Indigenous stuff going on as compared to anything I've seen in the U.S. anyway. And um, so as part of that, and that was a provostial unit, as they say. So I did spend two years working on the uh, Indigenous strategic plan. I was co-lead. and. So that took a lot of time talking to students, faculty, staff, community members, two campuses and so forth uh, to figure out what to do. And so that was, and, and University of British Columbia is uh, 70,000 to 80,000 people. There's a smaller campus than the big one. And so we launched that in 2020 and that uh, was launched to audiences around the world. I, I forget, I always mean to get that number, but I can never remember how many countries were watching at the same time. And so that was a huge thing that I was doing. And then um, for nursing up there, I was uh, tapped to be on the investigation team for the Minister of Health on anti-Indigenous racism in healthcare in BC because they had gotten reports of all sorts of things going on that shouldn't be going on. And so that was another year spent on uh, that re investigation and report. The final report is called In Plain Sight, Addressing Anti-Indigenous, because all this is happening literally in place. The community members see it, the other nurses see it, the you know family members, everybody sees it. But, you know, what are they going to do about it? So we we have this data. It was like an almost 300-page report with lots of cases in it and so forth. And now it's moved on to the implementation phase with the, the minister. So, you know, now we've got this, the old what, now what, and or so what, now what. So uh, they're carrying that on. And meanwhile, I've, I've moved back here. And during the move, sort of, I was on... Uh, National Academy of um, Science, Engineering, and Medicine consensus study called Federal, I don't know, they changed the name, but the gist of it is federal policies as they contribute to um, racial and ethnic health inequalities in the US. It just came out in July. And um, of course I was there to bring in the uh, indigenous perspective and issues and so forth. And so one of the things that, well, three recommendations that we came up with are one, fund Indian Health Service fully. <laughs> you know, it's 
Right. Sometimes as low as 40%. Sometimes I think now it's up to maybe 60 and 50. And it's not an R or D issue. No matter who's in, it's it, it really, it's never funded at need. And, or at whatever we say 100% is, it should actually be funded at like 125 because our numbers are so low and there's so much catching up to do highest, you know, life expectancy or lowest life expectancies in several administrative areas of Indian Health Service and um, raise the director of Indian Health Service up to the level of an assistant secretary of health and reinstate the um, House side Indian Affairs Committee. Both the Senate and House sides went away, like, I don't know, let's say 70s. Senate came back eventually, House never has. Wow. And both R&D have been asked and they're like, no, we're not bringing it. And those are the people that know something because the representative side reservations are in their backyards Yeah. versus Senate who look at the whole state and they don't have probably as clear an understanding, but for whatever reason, people don't want to bring that back. So, um, interesting. So anyway, those are sort of the broader things that I've been, um, working on. And now that I'm back to, um, a school of nursing here in the U S I do want to start looking again at my aging population. Um, I do, you know, I did oversee the, or it was the bridge liaison to the Board of Aging um, Expert Panel on Aging, among a few others, but I've always been part of the Aging Expert Panel throughout. I, I, I was inducted in 2008, so it's been a while. <laughs> so, <laughs> So I always keep it there in, in the uh, you know the back of my the my head. So I'm going to be looking more at that again. Yeah, uh, that's an, that's awesome. Um, I wanted to ask about there's a lot of stuff going on in various states and trying to almost say you know going backwards and trying to remove history and context uh, uh, with the you know Native American population and and others other populations as well. Um, what do you think from your perspective or what can nursing do as a profession, uh, to really step up? Because sometimes I feel like we're, we're, we're behind, uh, as far as, you know, um, how we, how we engage politics and policies. And by the time, like we say something, it's come and gone, um, what do you think uh, nursing has to do or uh, in order to be a stronger advocate or be a stronger ally uh, with the Native population? Yeah, uh, nursing has a huge voice, but I don't think they've recognized it yet. There mm. are three million-ish, probably more, nurses uh, as compared to last time I looked. It's been a while, though, um, 700,000 physicians. Yet physicians have a voice up here and nurses are down here. If right. they actually use their voice, it would be like, and I say this in terms of population, Chicago versus Nashville, you know, but they don't rec they don't know they're Chicago yet. And so if people could get on the same page, there's some simple things uh, that I learned in law school, um, administrative law that I think all nurses, I'm going to have to write this someday, that all nurses should know, which is the notice comment rule mechanism, which is if there's constant notices coming out, whether it's your state register or the federal register, comes out every day. 
And if nurses could just sign up, you can sign up in whatever state you're in and say, I want alerts on veterans. I want alerts on you know nursing homes. I want alerts on whatever it is, pregnancy, blah, blah, blah. And you will get all the proposed rules coming out. And what you can do, there's a comment period, 30 to 90 days, whatever the specific one is. If you wrote your comment and sent it in, Every, whether it's a state or federal, every comment has to be counted and recognized. Uh -huh. So therefore, can you imagine it, there's 3 million, even if 1 million, even if 700,000 nurses commented on something and relatively in unison, that would become law. Because the way it goes is they notify you, this is coming out, you comment and then the there's a final rule which has the uh, the uh, strength of law. It is the law. Right. Most people think the law is the bill that comes out. No, it's the final rule after the comment period. And so, um, for instance, you know, you hear so many nurses saying, um, "Oh, I can't do this because of my state, you know, laws and what." Well, where were you? They had they had <laughs> to put out a notice. Right. You had to say something and then it becomes final laws. But nurses just, they don't. And I didn't either. That's why I went to law school. I'm like, what's going on here? So <laughs> that's, that drove me after my PhD to figure out what, what to do. But they have a, they use it more in Canada than here, but truth and reconciliation. And what they say is you need the truth before you can reconcile things. So here in the U.S., we don't have the truth yet. So yeah. people could learn about this population. And that's why I did the book. Um, and, the, and, and I did it by regions, not by body systems or lifespan, which are the usual nursing books, because every region is so different. An Indian isn't an Indian, et cetera. Right. And so there are nine uh, uh, accepted cultural regions for American Indians and Alaska Natives in the US and then I added a 10th, which is urban because most people are off reservation now. Yeah. Uh, as of, I think the 90 census, they were 50, 50 or maybe a little off and now, you know, they're 78% off or something. Yeah. So um, people need to understand the regions and uh, what's happening. So I tell people, you can't know about everything. There's 574 federally recognized tribes. A lot of people don't even know that. And uh, you can't know the nuances of all of them. But if let's say you're in a state, know the tribes in your state yeah. and what you might likely come across or what they might need or understand that thing about are they members of federally recognized tribes, state recognized or they're unrecognized or whatever. You have to know something to be able to help them, even on a rudimentary level. And I don't think we're there yet. Thank you. Um, and, and it's very true. Um, like like Los Angeles has one of the largest Native American populations, but they're in L.A. They're not living necessarily in the, on tribal land. So uh, very true. Um, very insightful. Um, I do have a question. As you were talking, uh, something popped into my brain uh we're seeing and 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 i and i and i've heard you uh speak several of these land acknowledgements um and and i appreciate the fact that that's been brought into the fold uh but uh, sometimes it feels very 
Uh, it doesn't feel like we're doing enough by simply just doing a land acknowledgement. And I think a lot of uh, maybe institutions have said, well, we did the land, land acknowledgement. So thanks very much. We're good. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> and it's something, you know, I, I appreciate the land acknowledgement, but I don't always feel like the warm and fuzzies that everybody else may feel as a result of it. Um, what was the purpose? Like, I know that well, I know I know the purpose, but but in your opinion, what was the purpose for the land acknowledgements coming into place? And what's next? Like, I hear the land acknowledgement. What can I do more? Sure. And there's so many ups and downs about the land acknowledgement or so many <laughs> sides to it or whatever. And it's way more prevalent in Canada. So it's just, I know what you're saying. A, it could become rote, just like, right. oh, we have to say this. And so we're going to say it without even knowing what the words coming out of your mouth or what it means. So for instance, where I just came from, we were on Musqueam territory. And so we would say, you know, we're on the um, traditional um, uh, unceded ancestral lands or whatever. And then we would stop and say, especially if we're talking to students, what does unceded mean? And they'd heard this a thousand times. They, everybody says this at every meeting everywhere yeah. all the time and they're like well, i don't know so i said so that's one of the next thing what <laughs> right. do the words mean in this thing go look <laughs> something up go look up current context what are the musqueam doing right now you know um you can't just do the light so it goes again with that truth and reconciliation right it's not everything or enough it's a start it's a start to get people to know the truth that, hey, these people were here. Did you realize that? And that's something that I often say in mine is that it's great you're all here. <laughs> these people used to be here. What happened in between? You know, yeah. find out something, anything as to what happened. Yeah. Uh, you can't just rattle it off. You have to you have to sort of say something. Yeah. And anything comes part of, I don't know, it just feels like, uh, you know, having grown up part of my life in the Middle East and the conflicts that are happening there right now, I sort of have like both sides of the story. Uh, I have friends that are Palestinian, I have friends that are from Israel. Uh, so I, I and, and I, you know, um, and I've had my own sort of enculturation, both in, in my home country and in the US. So there's a lot of internal conflict that's happening in me right now, where I'm like, either way, like a lot of uh, lives are being lost. Yeah. Um, but but uh, but you but you bring up you bring up a point of how what do we need to do? And I always put it back on the nursing profession and on the individuals that how do we um, educate, right? And then I have it. I'm, I'm in academia. So how do we educate our students and our nurses so they are better informed and understand the history? And it's not just something they're getting out of small 10 second clips off of social media, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and they get outraged over, over stuff, uh, sometimes well-placed, sometimes not well-placed because they don't have the full story. Um, so I appreciate, uh, I appreciate uh uh, what you're mentioning is actually really understanding the words and the history behind things and um, really becoming more of an investigator. So we're better informed. Um, so we make, uh, so we, 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 we touch on the points that, that we need to touch on and at the end of the end of the day, how do we make people's lives better? 
Um, so right. I appreciate that. Um, I want to be cognizant of our time. We have a few minutes left. Um, anything else you want to uh, share uh, with, with the audience would be wonderful. Sure. And, and just going to your last point, what can nurses do or know or schools of nursing more like it? Uh, coming from BC again, there was a mandatory course, which is the one I taught, co-taught. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Um, on Indigenous Peoples Health Promotion. It was mandatory. Mm. And I haven't seen that in the U.S. I haven't seen a mandatory course. And maybe if nurses were first made, I hate to say it that way, to learn this um, context, history, geopolitical everything, historical trauma, structural racism, all of that in, in regards to the Indigenous population, uh, we might be further down the road because if we just expect them to learn it on their own, unless somebody, what, 1% have an interest or for whatever reason, right? they're not going to add to their you know, curriculum. And unfortunately, right now, it seems like most, I, I, I assume there's some in the West. I don't know. Uh, but most schools of nursing say, oh, we're packed to the gills. We couldn't put yeah. in one more credit of anything. This is what they need to do for the, you know, NCLEX, et cetera, et cetera. Until P schools of nursing and maybe even the NCLEX decide this isn't important enough, we need to start doing this, make it mandatory, make it universal yeah. and have it done. But right now, I would assume, I haven't looked at people's curriculum, but I, I assume that there are some courses in nursing with indigenous bents in the West, probably West of the Mississippi. Uh, but I bet you also that they're electives. Uh, uh, I, I bet you it's not mandatory. And so how would we ever expect nurses to know what to do? What are the nuances? Even the big ones, even, even big ones. Are you from a federally recognized tribe? Cause now I can root you places or whatever, yeah. you know, um, they, it's not just, I mean, I am American Indian and didn't learn any, I had all the same, you know, schooling as everybody else. And I never learned one whit of any of this stuff. So um, sure. yeah. that's why I went to New Mexico and why I went to law school and took things like federal Indian law and so forth, because it doesn't just drop in your lap and maybe it should. So, yeah. Yeah. And that's the thing I think, uh, I've I've had I've had I've spoken to colleagues and they're like, well, it should be nurses' responsibilities. I'm like, but if we're waiting for the nurses to pick yeah. up on this on their own, yeah, uh, we're in trouble because right. uh, people aren't necessarily. As if it's not in their wheelhouse and it's right. not, it's not, not on a, the test. It's, yeah, exactly. If it's not on the test, if it's not on the NCLEC, <laughs> it's not on a national board somewhere. Uh, we're more than likely uh, it's not being taught. And uh, unless we're bringing that information to them, actively bringing it to them and pushing them in, yeah. into that critical thinking role, um, uh, a lot and, of times it won't I, happen on its own. And as I said in one talk, when when we did the evaluation of one of these classes, and this was like a 120 person class in, in Canada, they were awestruck. They were crying. They were, you know, they're wow. like, oh, my gosh, I never knew any of this. Thank you. And it wasn't just us, the faculty. We brought in elders and people who had been in Indian hospitals and, and theirs are pretty bad. Well, they don't even have them anymore. 
the residential schools, all the things that had happened, they had no idea of these, you know, 20 to 30 year olds. They, they didn't know yeah. any of it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, that that's, you know, again, one of the reasons going back to my own vacations and road trips is I want my girls to be exposed uh, to the various things and the various cultures. And again, then we talk about it. We talk about, you know, uh, some of, some of the issues and, um, and so, but if people don't ex get, don't get exposed to it, they're not going to follow up on it or they're not going to want to know more. Uh, so that exposure is important. It really is. And, and I do talks all around the country and whatever state I'm in, I usually ask them, how many tribes are in this state? Yeah. And I, in 23 years, I've probably gotten three right answers. People don't even know the tribes in their own states. Yeah. You know, well, so I, I don't. I don't. Yeah. <laughs> Look it up. <laughs> yeah. That's what I'm going to actually want to do that right after. As soon yeah. as we end this, I'm going to like, how many tribes in California? Yeah, uh, yeah. But yeah, but very true. Uh, and yeah, you're right. Most... LA County has the largest urban uh, Indian population in the county. New York City has the largest urban Indian population in a city. Mm. There are like 110 to 17 ish thousand in New York. If it was a tribe or a reservation, it'd be like in the top 10. And yet there's not one Indian clinic. There's nothing. It was because of relocation. Uh, wow. Same in California. There are tribes there, but also huge relocation um, policies that distribute them away from the land. And, and But nothing set up. No infrastructure. There's not to this day. At least the last time I looked, there wasn't any clinic in New York City. Yet it has over 100,000 yeah. American yeah. Indians. I know of one in L.A., um, but I just know the one. Yeah, I think um, there's probably again whenever I'm sure it's more Mississippi. It's it's a little better, but in the east, yeah, no, yeah. yeah. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate your okay. time. I know you. I know you're super busy, and I appreciate the time you gave the podcast, so we can we sure. can uh, we can share your uh, your experiences and your knowledge. Um, we have been listening to Dr. Margaret Moss. Uh, she is a professor at the University of Minnesota and associate dean for nursing and health policy. Uh, hopefully, down the line, we can collaborate. Veterans, I know you have a veteran connection. Veterans, Native American population. I think that's that's that 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 that'll be a wonderful opportunity for us to work together. So, thank you, Dr. Moss. Uh, it's been a pleasure, and I look forward to bringing uh, our audience uh, more incredible guests in the very near future. Thank you so much and have a great one. You've been listening to the RN Mentor with your host, Ali Taya. Please don't forget to visit www.aliartayeb.com. That's www.ali rtayyeb.com for podcast notes and resources. And don't forget to subscribe. Until next time, I wish you fair winds and following seas.